Hi guys, welcome to the big picture. My name is Joe Crewy. I'm at Paradigm in the Weeds around everything crypto vol markets. I'm joined here by macro man David Pakel, as well as Clara, who re leads research at Kaiko. Honestly, guys, they truly have some of the best research out there on crypto market uh, microstructure, liquidity. So definitely check out their website, check out their research. We'll link it in the description below. We're going to have a massive episode today, but before we begin, smash that like button, smash that subscribe button. We're here every week to give you the latest and greatest around crypto derivatives, markets, and beyond. Uh, Clara, thanks so much for coming on. To begin, if you could quickly introduce yourself to our viewers, you know, give a brief overview of your background, how you ended up in crypto and that you're doing at Kaika. Yeah, for sure. Thank you guys for having me. So I'm Clara. I'm the director of research at Kaiko, and I've actually been here for five years which of course is ancient in the crypto world. Um, but I started getting interested in crypto back in 2017. So not that early, about the first wave of bull market interest. Um, and then I moved to Paris to work at Kaiko. Kaiko is a French headquartered company or crypto data provider, um, but we do have global offices. We have a big presence in New York and Singapore and in London. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Again, really glad to have you on. To, and as, as I said earlier, I honestly think it's some of the best research out there. And I think it's timely that we're having you on. It's certainly been a massive couple of weeks in terms of news flow in the crypto space. You know, some obviously not so good with, you know, the SEC complaints against, you know, Coinbase and Binance, but also some really good news around, you know, the BlackRock's BTC ETF application that you know, we really think has been the main driver of the Bitcoin price action, you know, through the top of this descending channel, you know, that I have on this chart. And, you know, perhaps now we're finally kind of seeing that catalyst that's going to kind of take us uh, to fill the gap back towards that 30K level and on, on obviously hopefully beyond. But, you know, floors on Paradigm have really kicked up in, um, in a big way here. Right. We're seeing a lot more people coming back and re-engaging the crypto option market, you know, playing for these upside moves. And that's especially occurring in Bitcoin, you know, having been in the doldrums, uh, you know, spot has been pretty range bound. It's kind of, you know, consolidated and just grinded lower for a little bit and finally starting to see again this resurgence of upside interest on paradigm. And, you know, I don't want to say that it's akin to, you know, Q1 of this year when we saw when we had the very blistering spot rally, but it's nice to finally see some of this Bitcoin flow return as Bitcoin returns into the spot up vol up environment as we break out of this channel. So just looking at some of the prints from the from the the past few days, obviously the very big one has been, you know, just these 40,000 calls. And at the time of recording, literally uh, as we were jumping on, there was more size going up in this outright call right before we actually hit the record button today, um, today being Wednesday. But also, you know, the June 27K call being bought, the August 36K, and then also a bunch of call spreads, you know, the June 33, 36, 33, 35s as well. So kind of playing for that short-term sort of upside move. And, you know, notably, you know, a lot of the buyers, you know, of these prints have been a lot of natural taker interests that are coming back and really re-engaging the, the market for the first time in months, you know, really since Q1 of this year. You know, in the action, at least on Paradigm in the crypto options market, has really concentrated in Bitcoin, you know, rather than Ethereum, which I think it makes sense given like the iShares narrative at play, as well as, you know, Bitcoin's relative insulation, 
you know, from regulatory action. I mean, I feel at this point, you know, Bitcoin feels pretty bulletproof. So, uh, Claire, I would really love to hear your perspective on the iShare news. Do you think it potentially leads to this Bitcoin versus ETH outperformance, uh, which is certainly what we've been seeing in the crypto options market? Well, I think we actually just looked at sort of Bitcoin dominance and specifically on U.S. exchanges, we saw that Bitcoin's dominance has increased from 29% of spot market volume to 44% since the start of the year. So it's very clear that investors are are considering Bitcoin as sort of the ultimate safe haven, which is what you usually see during a crypto downturn. But sort of the pace of Bitcoin volume relative to all other crypto asset volume seems to be increasing um, so I think that's that's a sign that I guess back to Bitcoin, like we typically see during these times of extreme volatility. Right. Yeah. And I guess what do, what do you see in terms of, you know, the likelihood? I mean, obviously, this is this is like the million dollar question, right? When, when will we get this spot ETF that that actually goes through? I mean, uh, David, I'll open it up to you as well. Like, what do you, what do you guys kind of see of the likelihood of this happening? I mean, I mean, yeah, tight time frames. I've got no kind of insight into that. Um, although I have seen some stuff on like social media to suggest it's a little bit more imminent than what what we're typically used to. Um, so, so that would be interesting, and, and certainly, I don't know. Like, I, I've always got that kind of spidey sense radar up. Like, certainly, there, there feels like something's afoot. Um, it's certainly curious the timing with how how quickly. Um, you know, we've had obviously uh, BlackRock and, and then we've had uh, the, the talk about the Fidelity Grayscale thing coming out, um, Invesco today, um, sort of reigniting that application. So it feels to me like maybe something's going on. Um, and I, I never think these things are too coincidental. And knowing the cost and the time that these things take as well, it just feels interesting. Um yeah, I, I've seen some suggestions that it's 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 kind of you know you can talk almost in weeks than than in, in months or, or years. Um, you know, who who knows? I, I've got no insight, but I I do I do think this is quite sort of significant. Um, and actually, Jay's pick you up on your earlier point. You know, I it, it does feel a little bit like January to me, and certainly the taker interest coming back that we're seeing. Um, and also if I, if I kind of thought of where maybe some of the positioning, um, was, uh, and where some of the positioning pain would have been, obviously we've talk, we talked at length about some of this like ETH overwrites and what have you, and, and then kind of people jumping on that and, and that, that short vol move. Um, the fact that we kind of, again, just focus back on Bitcoin and, um, that's kind of leading the charge. Yeah. It, it feels January, man. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it, I mean, we're now we're kind of at the, at the time of recording on this cusp of, you know, 29K and, you know, 30K, that is kind of like historically been, you know, kind of a difficult level to break. But I mean, shifting gears, you know, Claire, I've really liked your guys's, you know, framework around examining, you know, crypto market liquidity. You know, it's some of like, the, it, again, it's some of the best stuff out there. So, you know, for our viewers, can you, got, can you give like a quick summary of like what you're seeing right now? You know, liquidity being on the lows given, you know, the, the U.S. regulatory actions, you know, crypto on and off ramps being removed. You know, some market makers retreating from onshore exchanges. And 
on this podcast, we've talked about it before where this low liquidity environment that we kind of have is kind of like a catalyst in itself because because the order book depth at, you know, I think I actually have a good chart from from your research. Oh, nice. Um, right here, where the liquidity, the lot or lack thereof, can almost be like a catalyst in itself because it just doesn't take that much to move the market. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah. So so our liquidity, I guess, first to define liquidity, we use order book data. So Keiko collects two order book snapshots for nearly 200,000 traded instruments across 100 exchanges. So we have some of the most comprehensive order book data in the crypto data space. But of course, this data is massive and it's really hard to work with unless you're like a quant. So we build a really nice data set where we take market depth. It's essentially just the sum of all bids and all asks on either side of the mid price. And from that, at the instrument level, then you can build aggregations like total Bitcoin dollar depth across all exchanges or total Bitcoin depth where you take the sum of BTC USD, BTC USDT. So it sort of aggregates this immense amount of information and it gives sort of a global measure for liquidity, which is what this chart shows. And actually this chart aggregates not just Bitcoin, it aggregates the top 10 crypto assets. It's a mm. new data type that we have that essentially lets you take the dollar value of liquidity for any combination of assets across every instrument in crypto markets. So this is a huge amount of data. And here we're looking at top 10 crypto asset, the change in the 1% market depth since the start of the year. And this is all exchanges. So we can see, you know, it's dropped. We're down 20% as measured by market depth. We're really hit with a bunch of huge and like bad events. We have the banking crisis, the cutoff from payment systems, um, and the regulatory crackdown, which has really scared market makers, because essentially what we're looking at is market maker activity. Right. It looks like it's kind of, you know, so I, I pulled this from your guys's Q2 liquidity report. Kind of seems like we've had a decent spike back, you know, over the past, uh, you know, like the past week or so. Mm -hmm. do, what's the driver of that? Is that kind of just, you know, noise in the data or was it was there kind of some something that you attribute that move to? That's a good question. I need to look at the exchange level information. I mean, overall, like there's been a lot going on with Binance and Binance US. Um, and so you'll have market makers sort of react to this negative news. They'll remove liquidity from the exchanges. And then when things settle down, they'll sort of re-add it. So we could be just seeing some noise in the data, but I'd have to look at the exchange level information. Yeah, it makes sense. And look, I mean, we'll tell you from the from the paradigm perspective, you know, we see the consequences of this extreme low liquidity environment, you know, in the Delta hedging from market makers, you know, when they, they, they effectively need to rebalance their, their crypto options exposure. And, you know, you really see it like when a big option print goes through, it really has the ability to move the market. And you're considering the small size of the crypto of all markets. I mean, I think, you know, given, given the volumes have really kind of taken a hit in this range bound market, like a billion dollars a day is like a really good day. And, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting, this re reflexivity of the crypto vol markets kind of due to this lack of liquidity. And when dealers need to rebalance their deltas, it really has the potential to move the markets. And mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely no coincidence that as we get this move higher, we're seeing some big takers kind of come in and continue to buy more upside, more upside and effectively just push dealers shorter gamma and shorter vol, which kind of 
pushes the market higher in itself in this sort of you know reflexive feedback loop because as we've talked about on this podcast there's just some date taker balance sheets out there that just have the ability you know to dwarf those of market makers and uh, it's it's kind of a nice change of pace from what we what we were discussing a couple weeks ago on the podcast where we have seen this massive Ethereum overrider. And I, I know, Clara, I know you guys have kind of, you know, touched upon it as well in, in some of your crypto vol research. But what what we saw with all these big overrides was the market kind of showing this tendency to pin on strikes where, you know, dealers were, are along a lot of gamma and mute the spot moves kind of in both directions. So very, very interesting. Uh, Clara, Clara, I was just going to ask um, the, the two two interesting points that sort of you brought up um, in terms of what's impacted liquidity. Obviously, we've had the regulatory uncertainty, um, and then also just just the pure access from banks. We, we've had a couple of big banks sort of go under in March. What what kind of weight do you put on those two two drivers of of uh, illiquidity in, in terms of which has been more important? Is it just a pure banking access and um, ability to you know service those fiat on ramps, or or is it the regulatory uncertainty, or, or, or can or, or can we not really measure that in any any tangible way? I would say for like you can measure banking access by looking sort of at the fiat trading pairs, assuming that people trading the fiat pairs are the ones that need the like dollar off ramps, the dollar on and off ramps with twenty four seven access. Whereas when you're looking sort of at the big offshore exchanges on Binance or the Tether and TUSD markets, where you're still relying on stable coins and maybe you can settle the day in stable coins because you're less regulated. So you can sort of use that as a gauge. What's interesting is we compared this U.S. exchange liquidity versus offshore liquidity, and we found that it's about the same. So the drop in market depth has been impacted both globally and in the U.S., which means that maybe it's not actually the payment channels that is causing this. It could be just like sort of a global downturn in um, in sort of sentiment in the crypto space and like fear, genuine fear about what's going on in the U.S. on the regulatory front. Yeah, interesting. Right. And, and shifting gears away from from the U.S., what, what did you make of the tether peg that we had last week? Yeah, so we looked into that on our inner Monday newsletter um, and we found that there was a lot of selling before Tether actually depegged. And by depeg, it was very minor. It was just like a fraction of a cent. But still, that's a big deal for a stable coin that's supposed to be pegged to the dollar. We noticed that three days before, there was a huge uh, increase in selling pressure on Binance. Um, and on a handful of other exchanges, we measured the quantity of sell versus buy orders on the CVD. And I think this is interesting because like, who are these sellers? No one really knows. I was looking for on Twitter, sort of scouring all the news sources we normally have. And it, Heather even then published a press release saying it was a manipulation attempt. But who and why? Because the news that was dropped on Friday, which you would expect would have sort of a bearish impact, it didn't say that much different from what we've already seen these journalists reporting on when it comes to Tether's reserves. Yeah. And, and look, what... Would there ever be a, a significant crypto sell-off without a, without a tether DPEG? And that yeah. the, 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 the tether, uh, I think it was the C, the CEO came back came out on Twitter with some like pretty funny meme, memes around that. Um, but you know, I, I mean, I I think the timing of the DPEG is pretty interesting, right? I mean, the SEC has gone after Coinbase; they've gone after Binance. I mean, I will think that tether would kind of be a natch like a, a next natural target for them 
you know, so if you're a big holder of USDT, and I mean, there was there was a pretty decent DPEG in the uh, in the curve pools as well, right? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you de-risk, uh, you know, sell some of your USDT and put it into USDC, uh, or maybe there's people out there that potentially know something. That's, I mean, there's always a tether conspiracy. When has there ever not been? So. Like someone might know someone's maybe a large entity just decided to cash out of crypto. The thing is, like, why would you sell Tether on spot markets if you are a whale when you can just redeem them, um, assuming you are a whale? And so that's what doesn't make sense is like because spot markets dipped and it dipped below one dollar. That means they got slippage, which means they weren't getting a dollar for a dollar unless the fees on Tether were higher than what they simulated for price slippage. Like, I'm not really sure how they did it, but. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, yeah, and just kind of just shifting shifting gears back into, you know, the the vol markets here. You know, it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting to see. I mean, if you just look at these Bitcoin Ethereum spreads now, I, I remember what there was there were a lot of articles going going on around, you know, the internet when Ethereum was kind of priced at a, you know, zero vol premium. Now we're talking about Ethereum at, you know, an eight vol discount to Bitcoin. And, and look, I, th- I think that makes sense, you know, given the iShares, you know, BlackRock sort of narrative at play. And if you look at the skew, right? So if you look at the BTC versus Ethereum 25 Delta skew, randomized for at the money, you know, this actually tells a fairly interesting story here. So 25 Delta skew is measuring the difference in the implied call, uh, the implied vol of the calls versus the implied vol of the pips, but then it's standardized for the for the level of at the money vol. And if you see it in BTC, it's at the extreme. So you know the calls are relatively expensive relative to the puts. And if you look at it in Ethereum, it's kind of like barely in the sort of upper percentile of the year-to-date range. And of course, a decent reason for that is, you know, it's had less of a rally, you know, over the past couple of days. And and I think also another reason is we, we've kind of beaten the depth at this point in this podcast is this, you know, this overrider flow that's just drowning the market in vol is, is a big reason for this. You know, there's a very large open, open interest position in the June 1800s. And I think that's part of the reason why we haven't been really able to break this level, right? So, you know, vols are on the lows in both assets. So it's, you know, to us, it's not really all that surprising, you know, to see all this upper, outright upside interest in BTC, but also in call spreads to kind of take advantage of this elevated call call skew. And, you know, I think, I think it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, the majors barely reacted at all on the negative SEC news around Binance and Coinbase. And when Spot shows a, a muted reaction to, you know, negative news and rallies strongly on positive news like like the BlackRock news, that kind of tells me that, you know, the paper hands at this point are potentially gone. And it's now just, you know, long-term holders and, and you know, people that are kind of just in accumulation mode. So, I mean, David and Clara, I mean, what's your kind of like sense of positioning here? Like, are institutional investors like pretty damn like under position for, for a move if we were to, to go another like higher? And what do you think is like the continued momentum that kind of takes us to that next level through 30K? It's it's interesting you say that because we just, in our analyst call last night, we did a chart looking at daily volume, sort of tagging the SEC lawsuits, which you would expect in any other market environment to have like a massive sell-off. It targeted the world's largest exchange, but you see 
only a tiny, tiny increase in trade volume on that day. Um, and other than that, spot trade volumes are like at multi-year lows. So there was pretty much no reaction at all when looking at spot markets, much like how you're seeing sort of on the options front. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I'd add to that. Um, I mean, part of the one of the things underpinning my bullishness for most of this year is, is been the fact that, you know, I kind of felt the big deleveraging happened last year. Um you know, there's not there's not a huge amount of you know long leverage in the system. Um, you're kind of left with the hodlers because anyone that was probably going to stop out, they would have stopped out over the last year or so uh, with everything that's gone on. So I kind of feel there's not the leverage in the system. You know, lows that are long are, are now hodlers, um, and they're not going to be puking out just over a few sort of sex scary headlines. And then you've been like battered by all this like negative, constant like negative um headlines so it's kind of like the what's what's the catalyst for a, a big downside sell-off it's just not there which i i think partly feeds this positive uh spot vol correlation that that we've been seeing right every time spot comes off actually vol collapses because it becomes unexciting so i i, I definitely don't think there's a lot of positioning and i actually think there's an asymmetric uh, risk reward here in terms of the position that goes on will be to get long because people you know fomo and 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 uh we'll, we'll want to sort of get long the other thing as well is is and i kind of think you've seen this in equities and certainly in nasdaq is often it's about um about how you manage your benchmarks and one of the things i've been saying for a lot of this year we, we come out the traps flying in january and if you remember back in january you know we're still kind of you know working off the hangover a little bit at least mentally and, and from a narrative perspective from december um which felt like kind of felt like end of world type scenarios right even though we'd stabilized but um but then all of a sudden we come flying out the traps we had a really quick move and guys that i speak to a lot of guys missed it a lot of guys missed that move and and before you know it you know bitcoin's up 70 percent or what have you so i think those that are benchmarked to bitcoin those funds benchmarked to bitcoin are massively underperforming their benchmark so so that underweight is is going to force them to have to chase these moves so they were probably hoping that we were going to sort of drift back down so that they could get back in. And all of a sudden, we ha we're seeing a, a quick move again. Now, if you're, if you're benchmarked to Bitcoin, you can't be that far behind your benchmark. And I think you're seeing that in NASDAQ and, you know, yeah. you're full spying because you have to kind of reweight towards your benchmark. Otherwise, you're going to watch that run away from you. So, yeah, I, I, th I think the market is hugely underpositioned um, and there's going to be a lot more chasing to come. So I, I, I actually think, you ask what's going to kind of, you know, maybe take us through some of these clearly, you know, big resistance levels on, on the way up to 30K and, and certainly as we get towards the highs of the year. Um, I, I just think false, like, position chasing. Um, we've probably got some shorts that'll get squeezed. There's a, there's a little bit of negative gamma still to probably run and chasing's higher, but I, I think it will be those that have to just go, right, we have to throw the towel and chase this positioning higher because we're so far behind our benchmarks. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that makes sense. But you know, that being said, David, I feel like so much of your argument around the bullish thesis of BTC has been around liquidity, right? And now we've had we've had a Fed meeting, and now there's you know one or two more rate hikes priced this year, which which kind of you know goes against that easy sort of liquidity thesis. So I, I guess like what is, what is your counter to that? Like you've been pretty bearish 
uh, over the past couple of months? Like, are you are you changing your tune here? And if you're if you are changing your tune, I can't imagine it's due to the rate repricing. Yeah, so I, I think um, a, a lot of what's what drove my bearishness over the last few weeks or so um, was in anticipation of this liquidity drain post the debt ceiling hike um, and the, the the Treasury rebuilding the TGA balance and that massive liquidity drain. So that that was that was. And, you know, we, we're so tied to liquidity. So that was um, un- underpinning that bearishness. What we've actually seen is the the RRP, uh, the Re- Reserve Repo, has been actually drawing down to offset some of that Treasury issuance. So the net liquidity impact's not been as big. And also uh, the Treasury have been issuing uh, T-bills. So, um, actually, sorry, I can, I can hear myself back a little bit. I don't know if it's echoey to you guys. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm fine. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so um, so the the other thing as well is that the Treasury have been issuing T bills, so that that's that's easier to absorb, and actually, you know, money market funds will flow into that. So we're not seeing the same liquidity drain or, or you know that we feared. Now that's still lurking in the background. So liquidity is actually ticked up and improved over the last couple of weeks. Um, you start to see China come back to the market. Um, there's talk of a one trillion yuan uh, liquidity program or, or a stimulus program. Um, you, you've still got the Bank of Japan buying. So actually, global liquidity has actually improved. And then the big offset as well, which actually helps liquidity, is the dollar started to reverse lower as well. So if you think a few weeks ago, you know, dollar was kind of going higher. US rates were going higher. The US rates still a little bit, bit peaky, but they, they've kind of looked like they've stabilized and, and maybe heading lower again. Dollars come off substantially, so actually liquidity conditions have got better, um, and we've not seen this big liquidity drain on the TGA. So I think we can kind of and, and those headwinds are now kind of starting to turn into a tailwind. So global liquidity is actually picking up here, Joe. Got it. Uh, and kind of just just going back uh, to Keiko, a question I've had, you know, kind of since you know FTX and. You know the increasing concerns around counterparty risk on on centralized exchanges. Have you guys seen like more demand for you know DeFi data? You know what what are you seeing in the DeFi space? Are you guys seeing you know more and more interest kind of going this way due to you know the increased counterparty risk, or would you say maybe there was like an adi- initial pop and it's kind of tapered off a little bit? I mean, I would say like. Honestly, there hasn't been much of a change in terms of the level of interest. I think DeFi, unfortunately, was sort of swept up in all of the FTX stuff. Um, And especially when it came to sort of like collateral and how these centralized lenders were sort of interacting with DeFi protocols and there were a lot of losses. And at the end of the day, especially like on the DeFi lending side, it's only like a handful of people in crypto using them, but they're whales. So whales certainly use these DeFi lending protocols to take out loans for trading. But other than that, you're not seeing much retail usage at all. Um, And even on the DEX side, it's still like largely whale driven, especially decentralized exchanges like Curve, which are a very nice way to do a stable coin swap. Um, But other than that, like it's not overly friendly for retail users today. So on the data side, though, I guess that was your question. Um, Because Kaiko still is a B2B data provider, we do cater for its institutions. We're getting a lot of interest on the research front, specifically from traditional financial institutions on DeFi. Um, but I still think there's quite a ways to go before there's like this more global adoption. Right. Makes sense. 
very interesting. Do you have anything up? Yeah, I was, I was gonna say like because on um like DeFi DeFi volumes actually up um and certainly since a lot of the banking issues and stuff, is that a trend that we've seen? Um, so we saw a huge spike in stablecoin volumes during the banking crisis because there was like the USDC depegging, there was a USDT depegging last week, and the spike in volumes you see is mostly from like the three pool on curve. So yeah, volumes are up. It's not necessarily up because there's like increased traders. It's because there's volatility in the markets and traders are reacting. Yeah, interesting. Um. Yeah, that, that's interesting. The, the the other sort of question that I had, obviously, a lot of focus on Binance um, over recent weeks. In fact, always. <laughs> um, but you you know, they're not just in the US, actually in Europe as well. Um, sort of recent news in terms of pulling the FCA application and what have you. Um, where in a world where Binance dominance falls where does that flow migrate to and why have other exchanges do you think struggle to uh compete with binance um because it's still so dominant in this space honestly binance's rise like it is they they are so dominant even today they're still greater than 50 percent of global trade volumes um despite a wave of sec and cftc lawsuits like it, it almost it's almost baffling to just understand its grasp on the world of crypto um, in terms of other exchanges, I think that their closest competitors were based in APAC. You had OKX and Huobi, but each of those exchanges sort of made an error in focusing on APAC rather than going global, whereas Binance was like, we are a global exchange. We're not tied anywhere. Um, and so o OKX and Huobi, they're still some of the largest exchanges, but they lost a ton of market share um, as China banned crypto. And that was like the grave error that they all made. Um, whereas Binance did not. And Binance sort of blossomed after that, um, to say. Um, and so I think it will be interesting to see, though, what happens as Binance gets regulated in the U.S., also in the EU. They're now under investigation in France, um, which was supposed to be its big EU headquarters. And so where are they going to go? Are they going to lose all of their usage in the EU? They were just kicked out of GBP uh, deposits. They just pulled out of the U.K., they're pulling out of Australia. So it's like, where else do they go if it's both the US and EU? Yeah, it's interesting. And 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 currently, are, are you seeing like, any particular patterns in terms of that, that flow migration or, or or is it quite evenly dispersed across other exchanges? I mean, obviously we see, we yeah, haven't seen that I little ticket. Certainly the big, the, the big narrative everyone's talking about is Hong Kong, you know, opening up retail trading like, have you seen, I, I imagine it's probably a little bit too early, uh, you know, just given, you know, they just opened up the ability, um, or I think there's only two, there's two exchanges in Hong Kong that are approved allowing retail trading, but like, are you starting to see a little bit more of a migration there? And maybe, maybe those exchanges that were really focused on APAC kind of, you know, since that's where their DNA is kind of use this as an opportunity to, you know, really get the head start there. I mean, what do you think on that? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to measure this stuff just because centralized exchanges are often global and it's like the data is anonymous. You don't know who's executing the trades. So what we do typically is um, as a proxy is we'll look at like time of day and the hourly volumes, whether it's APAC hours versus U.S. hours or we'll mm -hmm. look at fiat denominated currency like USD currency pairs versus like tether currency pairs. Um, 
we actually did see a slight migration towards APAC right after the first Binance CFTC lawsuit. But overall, volumes are way lower. So there's like nuance between market share and trade volume. Like Binance's volumes have not held up as strong as other exchanges, but everything's still down globally. Right. Makes sense. And in, in terms of, I think it was, I think it was you guys that put out like a pretty good chart on, you know, time of day volumes really migrating from, you know, US hours into Asia hours. What are like the key hours of trading, um, you know, of, of in the spot markets in crypto? So the peak hour is at the exact overlap between US and EU. You have like one spike. I think it's like 8 a.m. EST or 9 a.m. EST. Um, and it's where EU traders are still online. US traders are just waking up. Um, then you have like sort of two hours there where it's still really high and then it sort of dips. And then you have a slight spike at APAC like morning. And then, but it's still lower than what you see US EU. Got it. <laughs> All right. I mean, that's... Go ahead, David. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. Just, just one other question I had. I thought was um, potentially quite interesting. Um, obviously, there's still uh, lots of uh, de-dollarization uh, stories going about, which, which we've kind of debunked on this show before. Um, I don't believe in that story particularly, but but yeah, perhaps there's a slow move to to moving away from the dollar, particularly as it relates to crypto, and given the the US approach uh, um, and aggressiveness towards crypto at the moment. Are you seeing any any kind of move away from sort of dollar stable coins um, and and dollar pairs? Because um, uh, you know dollar based stable coins is still dominant in in crypto. Yeah. Uh, are we seeing a migration away from that at all? So dollar stable coins, they're always, I think, well, at least for the near future, there there's no migration away. There's a euro stable coin, but it has like virtually no volumes. Um, part of the reason I think that is, is that there were like zero interest rates in Europe for years. And so like the business model didn't really make sense for um, for stablecoin issues to do issuers to do like a euro stablecoin. Um, what we did see that was interesting was dollar versus euro denominated crypto volume on exchanges. We have seen a doubling in euro volume from 10 percent to 20 percent relative to the dollar or since wow. last year. Um so it's still small. It's just 20% of dollar-denominated volumes. And I'm pretty sure it's just Kraken that's sort of leading this increase. Kraken has sort of weathered a lot of the market volatility over the past few months. Um, their liquidity is still pretty stable, um, and they're very popular in the EU. So I think that's probably linked to Kraken, but it is interesting nonetheless. Yeah, interesting. Okay, awesome. I think we're we're running out of time here but you know clara thank you so much for coming on this was extremely uh insightful and uh to our viewers we will link uh some of their research in the description below definitely check it out definitely subscribe some of the best stuff out there so clara thank you so much for coming on and, and giving us our, your insights it's always very interesting to kind of relate you know the liquidity data and you know what you're seeing and kind of you know the spot markets and kind of what we're seeing in the derivative uh, in the derivative landscape. So thank you so much again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get you back on soon. Great. Yeah.